Hey, everybody, and welcome back. Uh, it's Dr. Colby Taylor. Um, do I sound revitalized or rejuvenated? Uh, anyways, I'm coming off a beach vacation. I know in my last episode, I said I would try to record an episode before we left to go to Florida. Didn't get around to it. Um, packing for two kids uh, and myself was super difficult. Um, probably psychologically uh, trying um, in some ways. I think there's a lot of anxiety that goes around uh, vacation, right? Um, I know that my wife and I were on edge um, uh, probably up until we got to the beach. Uh, just thinking that we forgot something, you know, vacations can be super relaxing, but they can also be super stressful. We had a great time. The weather was really nice. It was great to be back to the beach. Um, it was my first time being at the beach since 2017, I think. So it's been, it's been a while. Actually, maybe since 2019. Um, but it's been way too long, uh, especially since when I lived in Kauai, right? I would wake up and look at the water every morning. Uh, my condo was right on the beach. Um, so I'd wake up, I'd sit out on my lanai, I'd drink coffee, um, and I'd look out at the beach, uh, which was super nice. So I, I definitely have missed the ocean. Um, and there's like psychological research that says that the uh, being around the water, um, and especially around the ocean, has positive psychological benefits. Um, I might have mentioned this in a previous episode, but there's a book I really like. It's called Blue Mind. And the subtitle is The Surprising Science That Shows How Being Near, In, On, or Underwater Can Make You Happier, Healthier, More Connected, and Better at What You Do. Um, it's by Wallace Nichols. Uh, and anyways, people who live close to water um, tend to be happier and healthier. Um, that's one of the reasons that waterfront property is so expensive. Um, so if any of my listeners have waterfront property, um, they want to leave me in their will or whatever, I would be happy to take it off of your hands. Um, but the beach, the water is not the focus of today's episode. Um, a few weeks ago, we had a mailbag request that mentioned parentification. Um, and so I thought I would dedicate today's episode to parentification. So I guess we can start out by defining parentification. Um, parentification is basically when a child steps into a caregiver role. Um, it could be thought of as like growing up fast, right? Um, you know, uh, sometimes children are put into very difficult situations where they're expected to be adults at an inappropriately young age. Um, here in Memphis, uh, you know, I do a lot of assessment work. And I've noticed this with adaptive skills. Um, adaptive skills are sort of everyday skills needed to meet the demands of your environment. Um, they're usually uh, sort of age-appropriate activities of daily living. Uh, and one of the things I noticed here, right, um, is I would be doing an assessment of somebody from a lower socioeconomic status. Um, and uh, one of the adaptive skills questions, we give these formalized assessments of adaptive skills. Uh, one is the ABAS, another is the Vineland. Um, but there might be an item that says, like, does your child use a knife to cut their meat? Um, and I'd be super interested in when listeners uh, were allowed to sort of cut their own meat with a knife. Um, not just a butter knife, but actually, you know, full on using sort of a butcher knife to, to cut a steak or cut chicken or whatever. I think I was probably like 11 or 12 years old. I don't know if that's uh, sort of the norm. I'd be interested to hear hear what when y'all were able to to use a knife to cut meat. Um, but you know, I was getting like three and four year olds from lower SES families. They have like five, six siblings, um, and so they'd be expected to cut their own meat at a very young age. 
Um, another sort of question um, that I'm always curious about, and you can answer that. When do you think it's appropriate for kids to stay home alone? Um, you know, for me, I don't think I was allowed to really stay home alone uh, until I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. And even then it was for like very short periods of time. Um, but occasionally I would have eight, nine, 10 year olds who would be staying home alone while their parents were off at work. Um, and sometimes even babysitting their younger siblings. Um, so one thing I noticed with adaptive skills is that kids of lower SES families tended to have higher adaptive skills than kids from like higher SES families. Uh, some of my kids from the suburbs, right, they'd be 14 years old. They wouldn't be allowed to use a knife to cut meat. Um, and they certainly, you know, wouldn't be staying home alone for prolonged periods of time. So it was really like, uh, for better or for worse, um, in poorer areas of town, uh, those kids were adaptively kicking the suburban kids' butts. Um, anyways, uh, there's some downside to parentification. We'll talk about that. Uh, Memphis is a top 10 city in the rate of childhood poverty in cities over 100,000 people. And we're a very poor city. Um, almost 40% of children in Memphis live in poverty. Um, we're number two in poverty for metro areas over a million. When you go into these sort of like poverty rankings of cities in the United States, there's sometimes different metrics that are used. And so you can go into two, three, four different lists and find different rankings. But Memphis is consistently one of the, uh, the poorest cities in the United States. Um, anyways, I might have mentioned this in another episode when I was thinking about cutting meat with a knife. Uh, there's a famous psychologist, sociologist named Barbara Rogoff. In one of uh, Barbara Rogoff's books, um, I think on the cover, there's this, this picture of an 11-year-old child. 11-year-old uh, maybe can't even really walk. The child is standing up and they're leaning um, with a machete. They're holding a machete. Um, and do you think that that's developmentally appropriate for an 11-month-old to hold a machete? Um, I think here, right, you'd be getting a Department of Children's Services call, right, uh, because we would consider an 11-month-old holding machete inappropriate and unsafe. Um, but in certain cultures, it's adaptively appropriate. In fact, it's important for survival for an 11, 12-month-old to be able to use a machete. That's an important survival skill. So anyways, that just came to mind when I was sort of talking about the knife and meat thing. Um, anyways, all right, parentification. Uh, so there's a, there's a great article by Jerkovic and he distinguishes between emotional parentification and instrumental parentification. So emotional parentification is basically like thinking and feeling like an adult, right? You've got to be mature and adult-like in your psychological demeanor. Um, this doesn't really go along with what we know about prefrontal cortex growth, right? Like we can't really expect a neurodevelopmentally, a seven or eight year old um, to be mature and adult-like psychologically, right? That probably is not gonna happen until your early or mid twenties. But that's emotional parentification for you to emotionally act beyond your age, to be wise beyond your years, I guess. Um, the other type of parent parentification is instrumental parentification. Uh, and instrumental involves doing tasks that are adult-like. So maybe making lunch for siblings, um, cooking, cleaning, babysitting, uh, bathing yourself, bathing siblings. Um, so sort of the, the doing the adult sort of dirty work, um, sort of what we talk about with the verb adulting. Um, obviously, parentification can be child abuse. Um, it's often a sign of neglect. Uh, and so I definitely get concerned, you know, when I hear about a seven or eight-year-old 
um, who's babysitting for six or seven hours a day in the summer and is expected to, to cook and clean and do a lot around the house for, for younger siblings. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that children of people with alcohol use disorder, so children of alcoholics, are much more likely to be parentified, which again can go along with sort of um, the neglect that can accompany parentification. And sadly, children who are parentified are more likely to go on to develop substance use disorders of their own in adulthood. And parentification is also a risk factor for other disorders outside of substance use disorders, um, like anxiety and depression. Um, in addition to being, you know, the child of somebody with an alcohol use disorder being a risk factor, we know children of divorce are also more likely to be parentified. Um, children who have a parent with a serious medical condition are more likely to be parentified. So there are a lot of risk factors related to parentification. Um, speaking of risk factors, I'd be super interested in how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected parentification. Um, with parents working from home, could maybe parentification have been reduced? Um, or that's pretty white collar, right? Parents working from home. Um, many blue collar workers couldn't work from home. Um, so did that place an increased burden on older siblings? Um, older siblings might be expected to do school from home, their own school work, and then also look after their younger brothers and sisters. So maybe there was an increased burden. I haven't really seen much research on parentification in the pandemic, but I think that that would make a super um, interesting sort of study. Um, speaking of studies, there's a ton of studies that show negative associations with parentification. Parentification, association. Trying to teach my three-year-old Emerson how to rhyme, so I'm sort of in rhyme time. I don't know that those technically rhyme. My wife is always telling me I'm saying words together like parentification and association. She's like, those don't rhyme. Those just sort of end in the same syllable or something. I don't know. Anyways, uh, lots of negative associations. So personality-wise, there was some research by Jones and Wells. They found that both males and females who are parentified are more likely to develop masochistic and narcissistic personality traits. Um, they actually did a follow-up study in 2010, um, and in addition to developing masochistic and narcissistic personality traits in adulthood, um, children who were parentified were more likely to go on and develop guilt and shame as an adult. Um, and then there was a study in 2010 also uh, by Castro and colleagues that found parentified children are more likely to become adults with imposter syndrome. Um, and if you've heard that term imposter syndrome before, um, I did an episode on it, season two, episode 11. So you can check that out if you're interested in imposter syndrome. Um, that's my dog Gertie in the background. I don't know if you heard that. Um, there could also be some positive associations with parentification. I think these are often overlooked, but there could be some good that comes out of it. Um, Hooper, Murata, and Lanthier in 2008 found that parentification among some individuals leads to greater resiliency and greater post-traumatic growth. So some people become more mature. Um, they can become caretaking spouses and caretaking parents in adulthood due to their experiences in childhood. So essentially, you develop greater autonomy due to parentification. Um, this Hooper study found that instrumental parentification has more positive associations than emotional parentification. So that's basically what I wanted to cover on parentification. Um, send me an email uh, on when you were able to like cut your meat with a knife or when you were able to first stay home alone. Because I'm super interested um, in when that becomes like developmentally appropriate.
Uh, anyways, all right. So on my trip to the beach, uh, it was like eight hour drive each way, seven, eight hour drive. And so uh, my wife and I listened to some podcasts on the way. And uh, one of the thing, things, one of the features of some of the podcasts we listen to that I really like and want to borrow for my own podcast um, is having sort of a trivia question or a, a trivia segment. Um, because I love trivia. I don't know if I've mentioned that on here before. Um, but I was on Jeopardy. Uh, I'm actually a Jeopardy champion. It sounds like super impressive, but it's really not. Um, I was on Jeopardy back in 2017. And then uh, back in, I think it was like 2019, I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So I love trivia. Um, I do bar trivia, pub trivia uh, with uh, a few of my work colleagues um, every week. Or I try to go every week, but you know, with kids and everything, I'm more like an every other week person, but I love trivia. And so I figured I would borrow or create my own trivia segment uh, for each episode. Um, and so today's sort of trivia question is what is hydrophobia? So what is hydrophobia? Hydrophobia being spelled H-Y-D-R-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. Um, and, you know, I'm a word nerd, so we could like dissect hydrophobia, right? Hydro meaning water, phobia, we know comes from like Aren't the moons of Mars Phobos and Deimos? And Phobos was like the, the Greek god of fear, maybe? I don't know. So you would think like fear of water. Um, and hydrophobia uh, sort of gets its roots from fear of water, but today we use the term aquaphobia as a fear of water. Um, hydrophobia is actually an old school name for, can you guess the, the disease, the medical disease? Um, hydrophobia is an old school name for rabies. Um, so people would avoid drinking water um, with rabies because their throat was spasming. And to some people, this looked like they were afraid of water, but they really weren't afraid of water. It was their throat spasming. Um, and so that's where we get the term hydrophobia from. Hydrophobia was an old school term for rabies. Uh, and that reminds me yesterday. Yesterday was the 4th of July here in the United States. It was a holiday. Um, and I <clears throat> watched some office episodes during the kids' nap time. And the episode of The Office that was on yesterday um, that sort of inspired this trivia question uh, was the one where Meredith was exposed to rabies. And they have a 5K, they have a fun run, the Michael Scott's Dunder Mifflin Springfield Meredith Palmer Memorial Celebrity Awareness Pro-Am Fun Run Race for the Cure. Um, and so that sort of inspired this trivia question. Uh, I love watching The Office. Um, I think it would be super interesting and fun to do an episode on The Office um, I mean, you know, there's some psychopathology there and certainly the psychology of the office. I think I could probably have enough material to do an episode. So maybe I'll do that in the future. Um, anyways, let's check the mailbag. So today's episode on parentification came about from a mailbag request. So you can send episode requests, comments, criticisms, whatever, to ctaylo 41 at cbu.edu. Put in the subject line mailbag um, and I'll try to get to it. Um, so today's mailbag email says, good morning, Dr. Taylor. What are one to three books you recommend to someone who is interested in pursuing studies in psychology? Um, what is your favorite book related to psychology? Um, uh, she goes on to say, I'm a current listener of your podcast. I'm only on episode 19, so I apologize if you get into more of these details. Starting an MS in Gen Psych, so an MSGP. Um, and the final assignment is to interview someone um, in your field. Um, so, uh, 
Very interesting. Um, also mentions in your first podcast, you were relatively young compared to the average psychologist, right? I finished my PhD, I think when I was 27, maybe. Um, so, you know, what made you pursue psychology? What made you choose school psychology? Um, and she also goes on to say, I'm actively serving in the military. So thank you for your service. Um, she would like to focus her studies on PTSD, uh, combat related or not. Um, uh, so, so very interesting. She go, also goes on to say TikTok seems to be a, uh, a platform for education, although not its intended purpose. <coughs> Sorry about that. And I've seen a lot of psychologists on the app educating people on how their brain works. Um, and some of these could be potentially helpful or maybe potentially harmful. Um, have you noticed a difference with TikTok being a platform for people to improve self-improvement? And then it's signed Amy. So I'm going to start with the end of your email, TikTok. Um, I've had some of my students ask me to like create a TikTok account. I don't even have a TikTok account. Um, I just watch like video reels on Instagram and I could do that for probably hours. There's definitely some sort of addictive dopamine release to, to watching Instagram reels, um, which I guess are sort of TikToks. I don't know. Um, but I've had some requests from my students to be a TikTok professor and, uh, that's just really not my personality. I mean, I think it could be fun. I think it works for some folks, um, but I just can't see myself doing that. I think the podcast is uh, like really sort of pushing my limits a little bit. So I don't know about I don't know about the TikTok thing, um, but I will say it's worked for some people. Um, so my uh, internship supervisor, Dr. Brad Klontz, um, uh, is sort of a TikTok psychologist, and uh, I saw I think last week he's up to eight hundred thousand followers. Um, and TikTok just had sort of a convention for mental health TikTok um, people. I don't know what their name is, TikTokers. Um, uh, and I think that was maybe like two weeks ago, last week or two weeks ago. Uh, and he was able to go to that. And, you know, they had um, roundtable discussions and stuff. And there's folks with, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of uh, followers on TikTok. Um, but not really my style. Um, to the book thing, okay, what are some, some books that I recommend for people um, looking into uh, psychology? Uh, one is The Complete Academic, and complete there is spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T. Uh, and trivia-wise, I think that goes to is it Isaac Walton, um, who published The Complete Angler um, back hundreds of years ago, and it was spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T. Um, huge fisherman, by the way. I don't know if I've mentioned that. Um, but it's the complete academic. The subtitle is a practical guide for the be for the beginning the beginning social scientist. Um, that's by Zana and Darley, um, and it's great. Uh, so I highly recommend that book. Um, you can find that book and other books on the APA uh, American Psychological Association website. They have a whole section on books. Um, another book I would recommend because I'm not very good at it, and it's something that I think terrifies a lot of psychology students, but it's necessary. Um, to get into graduate school and then to succeed in graduate school and the profession is Public Speaking for Psychologists, a lighthearted guide to research presentations, job talks, and other opportunities to embarrass yourself. And that's by Feldman and Sylvia. Um, so like it or not, if you go into psychology, you probably will have to engage in public speaking. Um, and this is sort of a good crash guide in that. Um, so those are my two go-to books for any psychology student. I think any psychology student can benefit from those two. Uh, but you can definitely get more specific, um, uh, and I could come up with more specific reading lists depending on what discipline of psychology you want to go into. So that is an absolutely great question. 
Um, send me some more mailbag questions. Uh, I enjoy getting questions like this. Um, uh, I'll try to, you can send me trivia questions too, and I can try to incorporate them into future podcasts. Uh, but anyways, we're at 20 minutes for this podcast. Um, it's lunchtime here. I hear my stomach growl, growling. Hopefully you didn't hear my stomach growl through the, the microphone. So I'm going to go get some lunch. Until next time, take care and stay well.